When you're a trumpet player for a drum and bugle corps, it can only mean one thing, that you're one serious horn player. That's where Jimmy Haslip's musical journey begins, but of course it doesn't end there. You see, his musical world was turned upside down at a live performance at a school dance where he witnessed the playing of an electric bass guitar for the very first time. Fast forward to L.A., where a young Jimmy Haslip is studying with his new teacher, Jaco Pastorius. As you might guess, success feeds success, as Jimmy's talents are honed and perfected. His career is elevated when he crosses paths with Russ Ferrante and Ricky Lawson to record on Robin Ford's first solo project in 1978. It's this collaboration that would lead to the creation of the legendary Yellow Jackets. With a career spanning more than 30 years, Haslip's discography and production credits are deep with amazing collaborations. Inside Music Cast welcomes a transplanted New Yorker and Long Island native, Jimmy Haslip. Hey, Jimmy, thanks for hanging out with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. You know, growing up on Long Island in the 50s and 60s, you know, it had to be a pretty exciting time to be in the New York area. And I, you know, I'm sure, you know, just being there, you were exposed to some amazing music and musicians. And, uh, you know, that alone had to be an incredible influence for you or, you know, or any young musician around that time. Well, it certainly was. Um, I have to say, you know, uh, I mean, I was basically uh, where I grew up in Long Island was about um, 40, 50 minutes outside of New York City. Right. So it wasn't, wasn't far-fetched to go into the city on most occasions to, to check out a lot of music there. So, yeah. you know, it was a melting pot. It was, you know, obviously one of the great cities to hit uh, in a touring band situation. So I got to see basically everything under the sun uh, that was happening at the time. And, of course, to me, the 60s uh, was a serious renaissance. Yeah. And, I mean, I mean, I didn't really think about it that much at the time because it was just happening, you know. Yeah, so absolutely. I was just trying to take it all in. <laughs> and uh, being a teenager and uh, being exposed to that much music, it uh, created in me a very eclectic palette mm-hmm. yeah. of stuff. So I was hearing everything from folk music to straight-ahead jazz, uh, and everything in between, classical music, rock and roll, funk, you know, R&B. Uh, so, I mean, everything was coming through town, and I was taking complete advantage of being able to see all this stuff live and then running out to the record store and buying all the records, <laughs> which um, uh, my senior year in high school, I had a, my one part-time job, working at Sam Goody's out on Long Island, Huntington, Long Island. Yeah. So, uh, believe it or not, back in those days, I think you could buy an LP for $3. <laughs> <laughs> and so being an employee of the, of the shop, uh, I got an employee discount, so I got to buy LPs for like $1.50. <laughs> well, Jimmy, that's that's still kind of expensive because don't people get their music for free now? <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> don't remind but, us, Rick. Don't remind us. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, in those days, for a young teenage guy that was really uh, passionate about keeping up with all the music that was going on, I'd walk out of the shop with almost my whole paycheck spent yeah. on oh, yeah. LPs, and I'd run home and 
put them on my stereo and, you know, just have hours of enjoyment. And then be at the same time being able to go to the Fillmore East or any number of colleges that were in the area uh, that had live music like uh, CW Post or Hofstra or uh, Southampton College or Stony Brook. I mean, any of those schools had live concerts, and I saw concerts at all those schools, plus going, <laughs> plus there was my father's place, which was kind of a local um, uh, club that had international music acts coming in all the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I saw the Grateful Dead there. I saw Frank Zappa there, uh, the Brecker Brothers, Tony Williams' New Lifetime, uh, uh, just amazing stuff there. And then, you know, going to the Fillmore and for 10 bucks being able to see, like, for example, on one night seeing uh, Jethro Tull, Chicago, and Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> so, you know, it's, wow. It's crazy, but uh, that's what was going on. So, um, uh, you know, being a, a young musician, just trying to figure out what, I wanted to do. I mean, there was so much there to inspire and motivate me that, you know, it was undeniable. That's kind of where I really wanted to go at a certain point in time, especially when I was 18 and 19. That's when I decided that I'd give this a shot and try to be a professional musician. Hey, Jimmy, before I ask the next question, I wanted to make sure to introduce uh, Max Zape, uh, one of our correspondents from San Diego, who's joining us here today. Great. Max, are you there? Oh, I'm just I'm just soaking it in, man, because I, I I dig the fact that that uh, that he's from Long Island because I used to live there. It's like I lived in Hempstead, and it's like uh, oh, man. a lot of memories. <laughs> That's <laughs> well, very yeah, cool. Hempstead had a really um, a wonderful uh, recording studio. It was Ultrasonic. Oh yeah, that's right. That. Yeah, uh, I I was just a kid when 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 we when we uh, moved from Hempstead because uh, back then my my father was stationed uh, at uh, at the uh, Brooklyn Naval Yard, you know, in Flatbush. Oh, uh, yeah, so we sure. we lived you know across the water there in Long Island, and I remember my dad commuting, you know, taking the bridge into the city, and <laughs> it's just a lot of memories about that time. <laughs> a lot of good stuff. Well, hey, Jimmy, tell me about life in the Haslip household when you were growing up. I mean, your parents really inspired you with their own passion for music. Is that right? Yes, they did. Uh, they they were really into music. They were really into dancing. You know, they came from that era. Um, my parents were born in the uh, early 1900s. So wow. uh, they grew up in this whole society of uh, where they, you know, got together with people and they would go to dances, you know, probably a big band, you know, Tommy Dorsey and all that stuff. So they, they were very passionate about music. Plus, they were, they were both uh, born in Puerto Rico. So, um, you know, music is part of the culture in Puerto Rican household. Um, so salsa music was prevalent uh, in my house growing up. And as a young kid, I got hip to everyone from Tito Puente to Eddie Palmieri to Ray Barreto, uh, sure. Mongo Santa Maria and mm. Tito Rodriguez, Celia Cruz, and, uh, you know, just everything under the sun that came out of Puerto Rico and Cuba. And, uh, you know, that added a whole other 
side of things uh, element to, to my musicality because, you know, uh, I think where I grew up in Long Island, I might have been might have been one of two Puerto Rican families in the area. <laughs> mm-hmm. I grew up in an Italian neighborhood, so <laughs> which was all, which was enriching in itself, you know, with the cuisine and the and the whole uh, family unit uh, uh, cultural thing, you know. This, Family is very important in, in the Italian household, so it, it all it, it all just kind of meshed together, and it was a wonderful experience growing up in that uh, environment. But my my mom and dad just constantly listened to music, so that was going on. And then I had an, an older brother, uh, ten years plus older than I am, and he was really he was a jazzer. Uh, he he was an artist, um, a painter, all through uh, high school, and uh, and you know very well read. And he was kind of a bohemian type character. Uh, so when I was like ten years old, he was twenty. You know. Yeah. And uh, when I was ten years old in the in the early '60s, he was going to uh, clubs in Harlem and and New York City. Um, Midtown Manhattan area, and he was checking out guys like Eric Dolphy and John Coltrane and Miles Davis and Eric Dolphy and people like that, who I was not really aware of. He would play that stuff for me at a young age, even though I didn't understand that I was exposed to it. He was also very passionate about classical music, so... Uh, as a young kid, he was playing me stuff like Prokofiev and and uh, Stravinsky and Mozart and you know Beethoven, uh, uh, Debussy, you know all this stuff that uh, was well beyond my uh, palate, but but I was still being exposed to it all. So yeah. it eventually all seeped into the engrams, and uh, as I got older, I I became much more aware of of all that music and and as a at a certain point as a professional musician i definitely studied more of it and and exposed myself to more of it Mm -hmm. yeah well you know we understand also that you know you grew up um uh, playing the the trumpet, and you started in junior high, and you actually played till you were like eighteen. So that was a pretty long stint of being a horn player. Tell us about that. And, and yeah, uh, well, I mean, it certainly made me appreciative of <laughs> what horn players have to go through uh, today. In fact, a lot of uh, trumpet players I play with, uh, some very fantastic ones like Randy Brecker, for example. Yeah, or right, right. You know, I played with those guys uh, a bunch, and and uh, uh, even Chris Bodie, I played with him. Mm-hmm. But I appreciate what they go through to keep their chops together, because I that was a struggle. You know, it's trying to keep your chops together. Um, but at the same time, I got to experience playing in an orchestra in a you know a big band. I got all that experience at a very young age, mm-hmm. um, and that was. Enlightening and and also very uh, helpful to me. It's as far as being a melodic uh, player, you know, playing um, melody and and uh, learning about that. I actually, uh, when I started playing electric bass, 
uh, was hard to find a teacher, so I actually got uh, my first teacher, uh, real teacher, uh, was a bass player, but he also played tuba. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I got to actually sit uh, with this teacher. His name is Ron Smith, uh, and he would pick up his tuba, and I would pick up the electric bass, and we'd go through exercises together. Wow, that's very but, cool. Uh, he, and, and what he gave me to, to, for lessons was uh, uh, melodic studies out of trombone books. So it was kind of a, a little bit to the left uh, as far as being a, a bass student uh, uh, at a young age to, to get lessons from a guy like that, you know. So I was, I was learning a, um, a lot of interesting stuff on the instrument through uh, uh, the studies of uh, brass instrument. <laughs> hey, you know, I, I love the story about the first time you saw a live bassist performing. I think it was it was at a, a school dance or something like that. And I guess you know, once you saw this guy playing, you were hooked. And uh, then your dad uh, he bought you a bass and an amp, and, and uh, you started you know you started playing bass, and you never looked back at that point, right? That's kind of the way it went. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I went to uh, a school dance. Uh, I guess I was like 12 going on 13 and uh and there was a live band and uh, it was one of the first times I really zoomed in on the electric bass cuz actually bef- even before that when I was a little really young kid when I was like 6 or 7 I remember going to a lot of weddings with my family and they would have live salsa bands but in the salsa band, they would have, like, the baby bass, which was kind of more like an upright bass. Yeah. But it was, at the school dance was the first time I actually really saw an electric bass guitar. And that kind of, like, blew me away. And, I, I, like you say, I got completely hooked on the idea of checking that out. Um, so my dad, you know, when I asked him, can I get an electric bass, he was totally into it. He he uh, he didn't flinch, and he took me to the local uh, music shop, and we yeah. picked out a a bass and a little combo amp. And I just uh, at that point, I got uh, completely uh, immersed in uh, practicing, even though I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, <laughs> technically, I just kind of kept practicing. I had a pretty good ear mm-hmm. yeah. playing trumpet, so I was just picking up all these uh, bass lines off of uh, 45s and uh, LPs and just learning the bass lines note for note. Well, the one thing you didn't tell us is that your dad bought you a right-handed bass and you're you're left-handed. So tell us about this because, you know, I'm sure our listeners know that you're a left-handed bassist, but there's a little bit more to the story. Go ahead and tell us that. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, neither he nor I really thought (laughs) much about the the actual technique of the instrument. Yeah. Just went ahead and bought a, a bass. And in those days, uh, even, even today, I mean, we live in a right-handed world. Yeah, um, yeah. But especially in those days, in the, in the 60s. So when uh, we walked into the music shop, all they had was right-handed instruments. So uh, not even thinking about left handed or right handed we just bought a right handed bass right and i just took it home and uh flipped <laughs> the thing upside down and learned how to play it like that with the uh 
the, the lower string on the bottom and the higher string on top, which, yeah. which to, to be honest with you, made perfect sense to me because, you know, it was going uh, from low to high, you know. So I, I didn't think that it was wrong until I think I started playing out with a little band that I was in in, uh, in my sophomore year, and uh, it was kind of a battle of the bands. <laughs> and this bass player came up to me and said, "Man, you're playing that all wrong. You're, you're, you're screwed." You know? <laughs> and, and I was kind of bummed for a while, but but then I just figured out oh, what the heck, you know. I mean, I, 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 at that time, I didn't really think that it was going to be my career. I was just kind of having fun and playing with some friends and learning tunes, and you know, it was. Uh, fantastic experience yeah and you haven't changed yet i mean you still have this you play oh, uh, i still play the same way and now it's 40 seven <laughs> years total uh, so well like they say if it ain't broke don't fix it right? exactly <laughs> well there's that and then there's the concept that i read somewhere if you do anything for ten thousand hours you should be very good at it. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Hey, guys, uh, I want to take a break, and I'd like to go back to an album that the Yellow Jackets released uh, in 1986 titled Shades. And I want to play the title track that was actually written by none other than Donald Fagan. And this is Shades on Inside Music Cast with our guest today, Jimmy Haslip.
Tell us about your migration from、uh, New York to Los Angeles. I mean, what ultimately brought you out to the West Coast? Well, a lot of stuff went down between, I guess it was like 1970 and 1975. Uh huh. Where、uh, the first thing that happened was I ended up going out to San Francisco with a buddy of mine. We actually drove out from New York. And I spent almost two years in San Francisco just kind of bouncing around and checking out the Haight Ashbury scene. And I got to jam with some interesting musicians,、uh, some guys that played in Elvin Bishop's band, and、uh, a few folk singers.、Um, You know, just got to hang out in a really beautiful city that、yeah. was a major hub for, for music in the 60s. Absolutely, yeah.、Um, so got, got to experience that. And then I ended up back in New York for a little while. And then while I was there, I got a call to come down to New Orleans to play with some friends down there. And I met some new people down there. And I actually lived in New Orleans for a couple of years. And while I was there, Uh, I met a drummer named Carmine Apice. Oh, okay. Good old Carmine. Yeah, Carmine、wow. was the original drummer in Vanilla Fudge. Absolutely. And I met him and I, I hung with him in、uh, New York a little bit. He was actually living in, had a house on Long Island,、uh, basically in a, a town that was right next door to where I grew up. So I got to hang with him there. And then I also,、uh, he was living in Los Angeles and he was in a group at the time. Called KGB. Yeah.、Uh, that was with a keyboard player named,、um, I want to say Barry Goldberg, but that, was, that wasn't his name, I don't think. And a singer named Ray Kennedy. Wow.、Um, and they had a deal, they did one record. Anyway, he invited me to come out to LA and、uh, check it out. So I ended up staying with him for a while. He introduced me to a lot of people. I actually met Richie Blackmore and John Bonham and、uh, a number of other people. Uh, uh, Max Middleton, yeah,、uh, who played keyboards on Blow by Blow, Jeff Beck's record. Right. So I, I got to jam with all these people, and、uh, we, we actually did a record together, which recently came out a record called V8,、um, which was.、Uh, Myself and Carmine and Max Middleton, and a guitar player named Ben Schultz.、Mm-hmm. And, um, but that's kind of, that was my introduction to Los Angeles. I really wasn't sure about staying in Los Angeles. I wasn't sure about the scene here. So I actually went back to New York for a while, and then I was asked to come back to work with Mark Stein, who was. Keyboard player and lead singer of Vanilla Fudge, who I met as well when I was out there with Carmine.、Mm-hmm. So he was trying to do a record, so、uh, he flew me back to LA, and that's, that was in 75, and I never left. <laughs> wow. Very wow. Cool. Very cool. <laughs> hey, Jimmy, 1975 was the year you met Jocko、uh, in LA, and you had an opportunity to study with him.、Um, as you think back you know, when,、uh, over your own career,、um, Can you tell us a little bit about you know, those times with Jocko and what that period meant to you? Well, when I, when I did come back to work on Mark Stein's record, I、uh, actually was still、uh, hooked up with this guy named Phil Brown, who was this interesting guitar player who I originally met in New Orleans. 
and he also came out to Los Angeles uh, around the same time I did. So uh, we uh, had a little band together with what we thought we were going to get Carmine in the band, but he was uh, obligated to um, uh, a contractual commitment. So he brought his brother out, Vinny Apice. So Vinny and Phil and I had a trio, and uh, we auditioned for a management company called Cavallo, Ruffalo, and Farnoli. So Cavallo, Ruffalo, and Farnoli managed Earth, Wind, and Fire, Little Feet, Prince, who was just starting out, Jeez. and an uh, interesting fusion band, which I was a huge fan of, called Weather Report. Um, <laughs> I've heard of them. Wow. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> while I was being managed by those guys, this was 1975, we um, were put into a rehearsal facility that was owned by Frank Zappa. It was in kind of the middle of Hollywood, but it was this uh, very um, secretive little place that had no signs, and uh, that's where we were rehearsing. They had two rooms. They had a small room, which we were in, and they had a larger kind of soundstage room, which at the same time I was rehearsing there with this group, uh, Weather Report was rehearsing to do um, their tour um, promoting a record they did called Black Market. Oh, right, right. Wow. How cool. Is there a particular lesson that you learned from Jaco that, that's, uh, that's part of your style to this day? Wow. I mean, just uh, spending some time with him, which is I, I met him at this rehearsal uh, facility, and uh, uh, he happened to be staying in a hotel that was literally two blocks from where I was staying. And that's how we, we ended up hooking up uh, at this rehearsal facility. And then he invited me back to his hotel, and I spent days, uh, basically five days uh, in succession, hanging out with him and uh, just playing music and talking about music. And he showed me a bunch of things, and he also explained some things to me that you know were very uh, motivating to me, and you know very uh, wonderful things to to learn about. You know, um, and you know I can't say that I have any uh, anything linked to him as far as my sound or how I play, other than. Maybe uh, at one point he was checking out my technique, my picking technique, and he said that was it was really good. And sure. I might have some sort of semblance of resemblance of of some picking technique that he was showing me. But other than that, I mean, he had the most exquisite sound, and you know, on fretless, I mean, just impeccable tuning and intonation and his voice i mean is by far probably the most remarkable voice on an electric bass that i've ever heard um and i haven't really heard anything that comes close to that to this day yeah um i would never personally say that i 
was that I'm even close to wherever he was. Um, about the closest thing that we had going was our birthdays. <laughs> uh, he was born on the 1st of December, 1951, and I was born on the 31st of December, 1951. So <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's about as close to anything for me with Jocko that I have. But but I, I must say that he was very kind and, uh, and very uh, insightful uh, in many ways. Uh, he created... Uh, a lot of really wonderful memories for me and 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 he also just reinforced my personal drive i i had a lot of drive already and a lot of motivating factors in in how i practice and how i approach music and you know if anything he gave that more energy and reinforced what i was doing and he shined a light on a lot of things that I work on to this day, which he had already, in my in, in my opinion, he had already perfected in a lot of ways. I'm still trying to, you know, perfect things and figure things out. But he is certainly a, a wealth of inspiration, and he inspires me every day. You know, I, if I do anything, I always... You know, Jock, I always use Jocko as the barometer or the, the bar to to look forward to, you know. He'll always be an inspiration to me. Absolutely. You know, the, the album Red Heat was uh, one of your solo albums that was released back in uh, 2000. And one of the tracks that I always loved on this one is called Via. So uh, I want to take a quick break and I want to check this one out. And again, this track is called Via from the album Red Heat from our guest today, Jimmy Haslip.
Hey, well, Jimmy, um, let's skip ahead. I want to talk a little bit about the Yellow Jackets. And, and the Yellow Jackets were essentially formed when you and Russ Ferrante and Ricky Lawson gathered to record uh, Robin Ford's uh, The Inside Story album. And, and it, had you worked with any of these guys before assembling for this session with Robin? Uh, a little bit. Um, uh, <clears throat> well, you know, when I met Robin, I was in a band with Ricky Lawson. Uh, we were touring with Flora Purim and Ayerto. Okay. And uh, we played here in town at a place called the Roxy. Yeah. A couple, a couple of nights. And it just so happened that the road manager with Flora's band was a roommate of Robin's. So oh, okay. he invited Robin down to the gig. After the show, I walked off stage, and Robin was standing backstage. And he approached me, and he asked me for my phone number and uh, said he was working on a project, and he was interested in getting together with me. And I knew who he was, you know, when he introduced himself to me. I, I was a fan of uh, uh, Tom Scott's L.A. Express. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah right. And, and I heard Robin play with, uh, with Jimmy Witherspoon as well. So I knew who he was, and, and I was very excited to meet him and, uh, you know, look, look into uh, getting together with him to play, which we did. And then at that time, he told me, uh, uh, that he was bringing a keyboard player down from the Bay Area, uh, and that that ended up being Russell Ferrante. Yeah, so, yeah. And uh, they had played with uh, Jimmy Witherspoon together, and they had played in other various uh, projects together. So I met Russell in Los Angeles. He had uh, driven down from from the Bay Area to rehearse because Robin had some local gigs here in town. There used to be a lot of really cool bars and stuff to play in. There was this place called Dante's okay. in uh, Studio City. There was a place called the Ice House in Pasadena. Uh, there was a place called the uh, the Lighthouse in uh, Hermosa Beach. And, um, and then we also did some gigs up in the Bay Area. There was a place called the Bodega, which was in the San Jose area. So we did. A, we he had a little schedule of some gigs to do, and uh, at first we we got together with a drummer that I recommended that I had played with in a bunch of bands. This guy named Gennaro Uvina, and he was from Long Island and lived out here, and he played with us for a little while. But uh, Robin wanted to make a change, and that's when Ricky Lawson showed up. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I had been playing with him in Flores band i recommended him and he came in and he was the right fit and uh and then shortly after that we went in the studio with steve cropper uh, as a producer and uh we did this record called the inside story which was really the precursor to the yellow jacket exactly well we'll explain the vibe um you know when you were with these guys and you're you know, this is the first time you guys are thrown together and you're getting to know Russ and, and, and Ricky's in there. And the chemistry of this thing is, is probably really important. And how did it feel at the very beginning? Did it feel good uh, when you guys were in the room? Oh, it felt perfect. Yeah? I mean, uh, there was really not, nothing else to be said. We would play the music and it all felt good. And, you know, our heads were all in kind of the same page and we were... You know, Robin was writing most of the music. Russell had written some stuff. Yeah. And uh, uh, I had just started writing music myself. You know, uh, I bought myself a little Casio keyboard, I think, and I started 
writing some tunes. So we were experimenting with some stuff that I wrote, which uh, none of that really made it on the inside story, but some some of what I wrote ended up on the first Yellow Jackets record. Mm-hmm. And uh, the chemistry was all there. I mean, it was, it was really, there was uh, nothing else really to be said other than, you know, we'd get in the room and play, and it was just kind of a magical experience. We all uh, enjoyed playing the music together, and it it did really feel great. Um, yeah. Well, you I know, have to say, you know, when we were doing the the Inside Story, mm-hmm. Robin had an idea to bring in some guest musicians for a couple of songs, and I won't mention the names, but they came in to play. Um, they replaced. I mean, you know, we. In fact, I think Russell and I ended up just coming down to the studio to visit <laughs> to kind of to kind of check out these these high profile guests. Yeah, and um, nobody was really happy with, with mm. what was going on, so um, they left, and then uh, we were asked to go in and re-record the, the songs that they tried. And it was a no-brainer. We we played the tunes, and it felt great, and that's what ended up on the record. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, and, you, you know, you learn something like that. You know, you go like, hey, look, you know, these these guys are very well-known musicians and really great musicians, but chemistry has a lot to do with it. So when you have a mm-hmm. band, sometimes... You can't replace the band. You know, you could bring in the best musicians, mm-hmm. but it may not have the same chemistry. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I I sort of realized that, you know, Robin's um, contributions to the band, it began to sort of, if you would, you know, just taper off a little bit. So, you know, in your opinion, you know, uh, in your perspective, what happened to Robin's role in the band? Uh, did he want out or was he focusing on other things or, um, you know, what was uh, what do you think was happening there? Well, uh, I think... You know, he always really wanted to have his own career as mm-hmm. a as a leader. Yeah, and um, uh, and and that was that was really the concept by the management. Um, they wanted they wanted us to have two deals. So one deal was Robin's solo career, which we would be his backup band, mm-hmm. and the other uh, deal would be as a quartet. So subsequently, when we signed with Warner Brothers, it was Russell Ferrante, Ricky Lawson, and myself that signed with Warner Brothers. Okay. And, and then we signed Robin to our so-called production company, you know, Yellow mm. Jackets Enterprises, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And then Robin had his deal with Electra Asylum, and we were playing on his record, see? Gotcha. So, uh, that's how we got around having two contracts. <laughs> <laughs> but what ended up happening was um, Robin's deal kind of started falling apart because they wanted uh, they they were asking him to do certain things, which I think artistically he wasn't really he wasn't really happy with. So that sort of fell apart, and then it ended up just being the Yellow Jackets with Robin in the band, and then I think Robin just really wanted to pursue other things, which I was, personally, I was totally fine with, and I always felt that a musician, even though he's in a band, should have freedom to do other projects and, you know, do other things. 
and there's always room to make that happen. Yeah. Jimmy, uh, the, the jackets lineup has sort of evolved over the years. And, and, uh, I remember, you know, it was basically you, Robin and, and Russ and Ricky. And then later on, you guys had Mark Russo and Will Kennedy. Uh, today we now have, you know, Bobby Mincer and, and, uh, and Felix who's, uh, uh, basically subbing. Uh, I've always viewed the jackets as a kind of a ongoing musical dialogue slash experiment. Um, what's What's your take on, on the evolution of, of the Jackets? Well, I mean, at this point, it's, it's mind-boggling that, you know, I mean, you know, when you first start a project like this, you never know what the outcome's going to be. If it's going to be one record, two records, you know. Uh, here we are, uh, the Yellow Jackets now have 21 records released, and various collaborative projects outside of the band yeah you know just to, just as an example there's the uh bobby mcfearn bang zoom record which was basically a collaboration with bobby and the yellow jackets that came out on blue note um yeah we did various collaborative projects like that when we were with grp one with lee rittenauer which is called portrait one with Dave Samuels, which was called Natural Selection. But um, as a band, I mean, at this point, it's 30, it's over 30 years, 21 official releases, and then uh, various other accolades, you know, Grammy nominations. I think there's 18 of those and two Grammys. Uh, other awards, you know, various critics' polls and readers' polls and all the jazz magazines. Um, you know, it's an uh, at this point, it's an entity on its own, and whoever's in the band hopefully carries the torch and uh, takes it seriously and passionately and moves forward. The band is going to do a record now with, with Felix on bass. Uh, I know they just got um, picked up uh, for another option with Mac Avenue Records. And, um, and I'm, you know, you know I'm, I'm a serious cheerleader. I mean, I, I started the group, and I want the group to continue and be successful. So um, I'm totally into the new direction for the band, and, and I support... The band, and hopefully this new record that comes out, I believe it'll come out in 2013. Uh, I hope that it's a, a huge success and uh, a wonderful recording. And that's that's what I believe in. That's what I support. And in the meantime, I'm, you know, very busy doing other projects. I'm playing in the Jeff Lorber Fusion and uh, just working now on a new Jeff Lorber Fusion record. Uh, it would be my third project with Jeff. Yeah, really. Um, as a producer as well. Um, and I I have a band with Robin uh, that's now just released our second record, um, which I, I am also involved as a producer. Uh, it's a group called Renegade Creation. That's with Michael Landau and Gary Novak. Yeah. And uh, we're now we're going to have a meeting uh, next week. Uh, going to find out about a U.S. tour in October. Oh, very cool! We, 
We did play and uh, we did do a tour in Europe in June, uh, promoting this new record, which is called Bullet. That's on the uh, yeah. Shrapnel label. Hey, while we're on the topic of uh, Renegade Creation, uh, you released another album earlier this summer called Bullet. And um, I want to take a break and check this track out uh, called Nazareth. And, you know, while the majority of the album uh, has kind of a heavy rock feel to it, this track has sort of a Neil Young, you know, cowboy folk approach to it. It's a really beautiful track. And uh, this is a track called Nazareth by our guest today, Jimmy Haslip and his band Renegade Creation. With 
let's talk about musical space for a minute. Um, the jackets represented such uh, such freedom. You know, uh, how do you how do you handle space for improvisation, and and how much of what's written on on your sketches uh, ends up on the recording? Oh, well, uh, quite a bit, I guess. Um, you know, I, I wrote a lot of music with Russell Ferrante, um, so we <clears throat> there's <clears throat> several projects where we almost wrote the whole records um, mu- music together. Um, you know, a, a lot of stuff that that I came up with is is imprinted into the music, but I I am very flexible about interpretation and. Uh, you know, I, I I certainly when a piece of music is introduced, I give up all <laughs> all all the uh, boundaries and parameters. I I am wide open to um, creative input and and creative interpretation. So uh, I am totally open to all that. And and working with musicians like you know, like uh, Bob Mincer and Will Kennedy and Russell Ferrante, uh, that's a win-win situation for me. You know, to have guys like that interpreting things that I wrote, uh, can't ask for much more than that, you know. You know, as as, as you mentioned, um, Jimmy, you know, you've been playing with Jeff at um, for, for a long time, and, and currently right now, I think you're, you're at Jeff's studio right now laying down some tracks for some new sequences with him, and you mentioned... Uh, you know, playing with uh, the Jeff Lorber Fusion and on Galaxy, and and your work has been amazing. I mean, I think um, what was the the album right before Galaxy was you know it was it a great amount of time. Yeah, it's uh, you know it was Grammy nominated the project before you know Galaxy. Yeah, you you guys for Grammy. Yeah, yeah and and uh, you know you've been a core member with Jeff, and and uh, I think it's uh, you know Eric uh, Marienthal for a while. Tell us a little bit about uh, playing with Jeff over the years because you guys. Uh, you guys are like brothers meshed at the at the hip, you know. <laughs> really. Well, we we've we've known each other for a very long time. In fact, I got hired to play on Kenny G's first recording, wow. which Jeff produced. Yeah. Um, and I did half of the record with uh, John Robinson on drums, and Jeff played keyboards, and that's that was when I first met Kenny Gorlick, and uh, it was his first record for Arista. So Jeff and I go way back. Uh, but it wasn't until about three years ago I went to Russia with Jeff in a little all-star group that was put together by Eric Marienthal. Um, so I, I guess I have to point the finger at Eric for putting us together like that. Um, but he t- Eric put a band together with uh, Chuck Loeb and Will Kennedy, myself, and Jeff on keyboards. And we went to Russia and the Ukraine and uh, for a couple of weeks, did a bunch of gigs, did some recording there with a, a Russian artist, and uh, did a bunch of gigs, and it was a really wonderful experience. And I think Jeff and I, at that, during that, that trip, we really bonded and uh, talked about a lot of things, realized we had a ton of stuff in common. And so uh, when we got back to the U.S., I had a, a project on my desk to produce this saxophonist from Norway, 
uh, named Teddy A. Lee, and I, uh, in talking to Teddy A., I found out that he was a huge fan of Jeff Lorber's, so I brought Jeff in uh, as a co-producer on this project, and uh, we had a blast working on that, and then I brought him in on another project that was kind of more like a, a, a rock project with a singer from Las Vegas. And we did some music. We wrote some music that was uh, reminiscent of Little Feet. And we went to Nashville and recorded those tracks, and we just had a ball. So then that's, w- that's what I think prompted Jeff to invite me in to help co-produce uh, Now's the Time with Bobby Columbi. Wow. With me. Uh, who, as you know, is a famous producer, and he produced Jocko's first solo record. Yes, exactly. And uh, he was also the original drummer in Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Right. He had a lot to do with the, that success. Um, and is now producing and managing Chris Bode. Wow. Uh, so he came in with me and Jeff, the three of us, uh, co-produced Now's the Time. That was nominated for a Grammy. And then Jeff invited uh, me to come in and produce this Galaxy record. We also brought Bobby in, but Bobby was really extremely busy uh, working with Chris Bodie on a project. So yeah. he was not as available to work on, on Galaxy. But he did do some consulting, so it was nice to have him around. He's a great guy to have around and extremely knowledgeable and uh, very creative. So... We're going to make sure we we uh, consult with him on this new project that we're working on now. So, so it, it's just been a wonderful experience. And now we, uh, Jeff and I, just finished the singer songwriters project. It was a small EP project, and um, we've done a few other uh, productions. And I have a couple of things now coming up that uh, Jeff and I are going to do together. So, very cool. Cool. Hey, Jimmy, back in the 70s, you played with uh, some guitar legends uh, like uh, Buzzy Faton and uh, Tommy Bolin, uh, and you even worked with Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, um, Lee Rittenauer, and Tom Scott. Uh, from a bassist perspective, what were the big differences in what and how you play for these artists? Well, you know, I think all that, uh, all of that uh, music was, is well, is inside of me, and that's that's all about what we were talking about before, you know, growing up in a uh, household with an eclectic palette of all this music and loving it all, and then hearing all this music as a young, aspiring musician in the 50s and 60s, um, and uh, really honestly enjoying all different kinds of music and having a passion to understand what all this different music is about, um, what the roots are, and, you know, doing a, a complete study on music uh, of all genres um, to the point where I, I can stand here today and, and say to you that I'm actually, as well as being well-rounded in all the typical genres like rock and R&B and jazz fusion and funk and folk music. Um, I have 
since the mid-'80s, been studying music from all different cultures. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I've become an ethnomusicologist, uh, and I've worked with uh, artists from all over the world. From Oh, I know. I, I, I was just thinking about my, my, my uh, friend's band, uh, Native Vibe, because I know you, you produced a yeah. couple of their projects. I did work with them. So, so, so to get back to, 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 to try to answer your question, you know, working with guys like Tommy Bowen or Crosby, Stills, and Nash, which are two different, uh, completely different kinds of music, um, and then working with Roy Ayers, Ubiquity, and Gino Vanelli, and uh, working with Buzzy Featon and you know Featon, Larson Featon Band, I did a record with those guys. I mean, it's all different kinds of music, but it's all music and it's all wonderful music. And uh, you know, all this knowledge of all this different kinds of music, it's it's just a matter of sitting down and and applying yourself and and passionately being involved in the music and to me it's it's really not not a problem to play all these kinds of music and you know i find complete enjoyment in working with all these different artists and you know i think being that i got exposed to all this at a young age it's all inside of me so it's a very easy thing to tap into yeah you know, um, Jimmy, you have uh, you actually recorded two solo albums, one um, on GRP. Actually three, but uh, really? two that people know about. <laughs> well, let's go, well, let's go backwards then. What happened to the third? Uh, the third record came out last year, and it's basically only been available on iTunes. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. Trying to work out some business situation that have a little more exposure on that. It's a record called Nightfall. Mm-hmm. Which is, I guess, on some level, it's um, how can I put this? Well, uh, it's maybe not an easy record to uh, listen to. Although I, I, you know, it's close to my heart. It's a record I, I did. I, all all these records, each of the three records has a very focused <laughs> inspiration that I got inside of me to actually write the music, and it's an expression um, from very deep inside of me, um, which I don't really forecast. I mean, I just, for me, it's, a, it's something, it was a very deep expression, and then I ho- what I hope for is that people listen to it and they get something out of it, whatever it is. Sure. So the first record... <laughs> It was my my I guess my divorce record. So I was going through a very <laughs> heavy time. I was being divorced from my first wife, and yeah. a lot of the music that I wrote on that record was, if I should say, inspired by uh, this very dark time in my life. But I also got a lot of help from a very wonderful composer named Vince Mendoza, who co-produced the record. It's a record called Ark. Right. And uh, also, at the time, I was there was some stuff going on with my dad, health-wise, so that sort of entered into the whole equation. But it was really more about me going through this very dark period. The second record was a record called Red Heat, and that was during the time when my father was very ill, and I, 
I put that record together in his honor and his name and his inspiration to me. And he passed away shortly after that record was finished. I'm sorry. Um, and the third record is a record called Nightfall. And I also produced that. But I produced Red Heat record and this new record with Joe Vanelli, who's a very close friend. And um, Nightfall record, my third record, is dedicated to my daughter, who became very ill when she was seven. And we dealt with a very serious illness for four years until she was 10. And at that point in time, she had a uh, procedure up at uh, Lucille Packard's Children's Hospital, which at this point, I can say, uh, cured her. But, you know, uh, there's still some things that are looming that we have to keep an eye on. But that record was inspired by my daughter. And if you get that record, you'll, you'll understand there's some photos of her yeah. In there, and in fact, there's a piece of artwork in, inside of that uh, package that she painted when the year before she got ill. So, yeah. So these records that I make are definitely uh, motivated by very deep personal experiences in my life. You know, a, a lot of a lot of solo projects from different people are always very introspective and and to yeah. carry a lot of burden on those things and and because everybody gets so busy doing everything else you come back to your yourself and of course, you know, as as we know here the Nightfall and these other projects are are basically just uh, a pouring out of of what you're saying of of life in a way and uh so no, we we understand it. Uh um yeah. you mentioned <laughs> Joe, you mentioned Joe Vanelli. Um you know, yeah. people might not even know that uh, you actually played on some very significant Gino Vanelli projects. You you played on Brother to Brother and Black Cars. And uh, how did you cross paths with uh, the Vanelli brothers? Well, that was a, a really great experience with a drummer that I played with in Tommy Boland's band, a guy named Mark Cranny. And Mark Cranny and I became very good friends while we were touring with Tommy Boland in the uh, mid-'70s. Uh, and we ended up also playing with other people, but he's the one that, that called me and said, hey, I'm, uh, I'm going to be playing with Gino Vanelli, and I, they were looking for a bass player. Would you like to come out and audition? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, sure, uh, let's hook it up. So he did, and he, came, he actually came over to my apartment, picked me up, and brought me out to... Uh, Gino's, I believe it was Gino's brother's house, uh, Ross's house. Yeah, mm-hmm. Ross. And uh, there was a little keyboard set up there and a little drum set and a bass amp. And uh, so I actually auditioned right there with uh, Mark Cranny on drums, Joe on keyboards, Gino was singing, Ross was there, Ross Vanelli, and their dad. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, it was a, <laughs> it's, it's a, a very serious, wonderful Italian family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I auditioned there, and I and to this day, I really believe that uh, Gino's dad was the one that really um, he put the, the approval stamp on on getting me involved with them. Uh, wow, that's in, neat. In recording, is he? I think he saw something in me that was that was cool and something that they were looking for. So I ended up on Brother to Brother from that rec from that uh, audition, and then uh, I actually I got 
involved in a whole other project, a couple of projects during that time that actually um, took me away from touring with Gino behind Brother to Brother, which I was very sad about. But uh, I, at that time, I had I, I wasn't sure what the future was going to hold as far as touring with Gino, mm-hmm. and I signed a deal with Polygram, and I was in this band with Michael Bolton, Bruce Kulick, and Sandy Gennaro, a group called Blackjack. Wow! And uh, we did our first record with Tom Dowd down at Criteria Studios in Miami, and that unfortunately conflicted with the Brother the Brother tour. So. <laughs> I kind of shot myself in the foot with that, but at the same time, I was experiencing this other very interesting experience with Tom Dowd, who is a world-renowned producer Absolutely. and someone that I really respected. Yeah, and uh, we made a, a an interesting record for Polygram, which was a self-titled first release called Blackjack, and I and we toured uh, for a few months, opening for Peter Frampton at the time. So. That was an interesting experience, so. and I and at the same time as well, I I did a, a a very long U.S. tour with Dave Mason and Friends. Oh, oh wow. cool! I love Dave Mason. I got reunited with uh, Steve Stills and Graham Nash, and uh, also got to back up uh, Joe Cocker, <laughs> Spencer Davis, and uh, and I was in a band with uh, Mark Stein on keyboards. For some of it, uh, Mike Finnegan was also playing in that band. Uh, Dr. Rick Jager on drums for part of it. Uh, Joe Lala, who played percussion. And a very talented uh, singer-songwriter guitar player named Jimmy Krieger. Wow, neat. Who wrote Dave's biggest hit, which was a song called We Just Disagree. Absolutely, yeah. It's a classic. Yeah. Hey, Jimmy, uh, today on our Facebook site, we... Uh, we posted a message and let it, our fans know that uh, we're going to be talking to you. And we opened it up uh, to them to post some questions, and we actually had quite a few. And I want to ask – I just want to, okay. throw out, I want to throw out a couple of those. And the first one I have here is from Rich Goldner from Queensland. That's true. And uh, he says, uh, what music or anything for that matter inspires your music and creativity? And then he says, how do you stay fresh musically across a variety of styles and genres? And he also says, thanks for all your wonderful music you've shared with us. That's very nice. You know, I, I, I'm constantly uh, listening to things. Uh, my ears are wide open. Uh, just as an example, I was uh, shopping for school clothes for my daughter the other day. <laughs> and uh, we were in Bloomingdale's. And, um, you know, of course, we were in the, in the young girl hipster section. <laughs> uh, <looking> at, <laughs> looking at clothes, and uh, they had some music being piped into the department. Yeah. And so while she was trying things on, I'm listening to what they're doing, and I have this great app on my iPhone called SoundHound. Yeah, yep. And um, so, that, you know, all kinds of stuff would come up, and i go, oh, that sounds kind of interesting, and I'd kind of hold up my SoundHound app, and it tells me, you know, who's who the artist is and right. what the record is. So I, I keep learning about new things like i just found this group that i call weather veins okay so i'm constantly doing that plus you know i love classical music and anytime i feel like i have no inspiration and i'm kind of in a dead end as far as like writing music or you know just feeling kind of 
in the valley of fatigue or something, uh, I'll uh, put on some classical music, and that always works. It just uh, brightens my day. I, I love listening to all different kinds of classical, even the dark stuff. Like, you know, sometimes I'll put on Mahler. My wife maybe yeah. doesn't like Mahler so much, so <laughs> I don't put it on when she's in the house. Um, but... Um, you know, sometimes when I'm on the road, I listen to all different kinds of things. I bring homework with me. I try to transcribe things. The last thing I tried to, uh, well, I've, I've been working on was a John McLaughlin solo on a trio record that he did with Joey DeFrancesco and Dennis Chambers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's so much stuff out there you know all you have to do is go on youtube and and search for stuff that you're looking for sure and uh that'll inspire you yeah you know just uh put up a clip of john coltrane playing live somewhere and and with the internet and all the things that we can do there and just you know all the records that are available uh just going on itunes and doing a a search and looking around there's always something that's going to perk you up. Yeah, it's pretty limitless these days. <laughs> yeah, it is limitless. So when I go to a, when I do a, a workshop or a seminar, and I have a student stand up and ask me, "What do I do to get inspired?" Because they're having trouble getting inspired. I go, "Man, there's," you know, when I was playing, uh, I don't want to sound like like my, you know, parents or anything, but when. <laughs> When I was learning to play the instrument when I was 13, there was no YouTube. There was yeah. nothing. You yeah. Know? You just, it was just word of mouth. Yeah. And, um, and hopefully things that maybe you saw live, mm-hmm. um, which weren't always easy to get to. So <laughs> Even at a school dance. Hey, another question we have from uh, Chris Horvath, and I I believe Chris is from L.A., and he says he wanted me to ask you how the tune Top Secret came to be. Uh, He said it's such an interesting bass line, guitar intro, and groove, and he goes, goes, uh, I know it's going back a a little ways, but he still wanted to ask about that one. Yeah, well, I was a co-composer of that song, and uh, it started out with a little funky bass line that I kind of messed around with, just sitting around my house at the time, and I was just kind of playing around with the instrument. Uh, it was a time when I was doing a little more things uh, thumb style uh, with the bass. I don't do that much with that anymore. But um, I, I all of a sudden I came up with this little bass line, uh, and I had at the time a Tascam 4-track <laughs> recorder, so I, I I got a little drum machine groove with like um, I don't know it was like, I think it was on my Casio keyboard and it was just this little loop sort of a funky groove it wasn't too funky I guess but I put that down on one track and then I overdubbed the thumb bass part that I came up with and that's how it started and then i brought that over to russ ferrante's house and we started messing with it and we found all these nice chords for it and uh figured out a little melody and uh we wrote this song called top secret but when we brought it into the rehearsal uh robin ford came up with the little guitar part that made it even much more interesting in my eyes um which was this, uh, it's called a hemiola, which is 
basically playing three against four. Okay. And he came up with this cool little guitar part that I think really made the song kind of perk on a, on on another level. And 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 when we recorded it, obviously we had a count off, so we knew where one was. And uh, but but when you, uh, listeners listening to the record, they don't hear the count off; they okay. just hear the opening guitar lick, which is um, three. And it's and it's very deceiving as to where one is. So that, oh, okay. that always I know <laughs> uh, messed people up when they <laughs> listen to the song, but they in a good way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey guys, why don't we take uh, one final break and let's check this track out? Uh, this is the track "Top Secret" from the 1983 Yellow Jackets album called "Mirage a Toi from our guest today, Jimmy Haslip.
Hey, well, Jimmy, we've spent a lot of time with you, and I appreciate you uh, answering all of our questions. And, of course, thanks to our listeners for sending in uh, uh, questions on Facebook. And uh, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, you mentioned earlier that you've got about five or six other records that you're producing, um, and you may be going out on tour with, uh, what was the name of the band again? Renegade Creation. That's right. And you, yeah. So sounds like you're Robin Ford, Mike Landau, and Gary Novak. Hey, well, Jimmy, thanks so much for joining us on Inside Music Cast. We really appreciate the time. I appreciate you having me, and I, I, uh, I thank you very much. All right, no problem. And uh, before you go, Eddie's Eddie's got one more question here. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You know, um, my question is, of course, is sort of linked to to, to Jeff. So, uh, you know, I know you're there working at at the studio with him right now, and I'm just wondering if he might be available to hop on the phone with us so we can have just uh, say hi to him. I sh- I can get him right now. He's working on something we were writing uh, a little earlier, and he's right in here. Hold on. Sounds I'm cool. Come in here. <laughs> hey, Jeff. Somebody wants to talk to you, uh, and. Uh, Thanks again for having me on here. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Thanks, Jimmy. All right. Here's Jeff. All right. Hey, how's it going there? Jeff, it's Eddie and Rick and even Max from San Diego. How you doing, man? Great. Good, good, good. Where, are you in the I kitchen? Or are you in the... All the uh, every, everything that uh, Jimmy had to music business in his career. Oh, my goodness. Last hour, I guess, right? We, we, could, <laughs> we, we could have gone on forever. We really could, just like talking to you. But, I'm sure uh, <laughs> but no, you know, we talked an awful lot and uh, about his relationship, even with working with you in the past few albums. And uh, so we're just glad that you guys are working together uh, in the studio today. So can you tell us what, what are you guys working on today? Anything uh, special? Well, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, I, I happen to be recording Vinnie Caliuta over a week and a half and you know, he's uh, sort of a hard guy to get a hold of. And so since I'm going to have him here, yeah. we're going to hold him hostage. No, we're going we're gonna to take advantage of um, having Vinny here. We're going to record some new music for, uh, for I guess, maybe a new Jeff Lorber Fusion album. Oh, cool. Um, and, uh, you know, even though I wasn't really planning on jumping into that anytime really soon, we're just sort of, you know, knocking our heads around trying to come up with some really cool ideas and uh, find some stuff for for Vinny play on while he's over here. So that's what we've been. That's doing. excellent. Well, very cool. We've been following you on uh, on Facebook and on Instagram. You've been uh, your uh, your tours through Europe. Are you? Uh, how's your jet lag? And how was the tour? <laughs> well, it's it's okay now. You know, um, we were lucky because we got to decompress. Kind of, uh, you know. Uh, Gradually, we played a show in, in Virginia, for, and we were there for a couple of days, and we went home. So that, that makes it a little easier than just flying straight back from, from Europe. Yeah, very cool. Well, I, I wanted to thank you uh, for this uh, this past December for inviting me to uh, to uh, to a session with Carol Dubach and uh, at, over at the Village in when I, when I was visiting in L.A. In fact, uh, that's where I first met met Jimmy and of course Vinny, and uh, and it was a very interesting project that uh, that you guys were laying down tracks and and uh, do you have any idea as to did Carol Dubach's uh, album come out yet or no? She was. Um, I think she wanted to wait until um, next year to put it out. Uh-huh. Um, it turns out that um, she wanted to, it, I guess one of the songs didn't quite as well as she had hoped. So just recently we've been working and we just wrote a new song the other day. And I guess we're going to continue to finish that one up. And that's, um, we might possibly have, get Vinny to play on that if, uh, if, we, if we have time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but basically she's uh, she's just putting the, the final touches on the on the record, and I think she's going to put it out uh, at the beginning of next show. Well, sounds cool. Well, listen, thanks for taking a little bit of time and saying hello to us, and we'll be looking. Sure. Keep keep Always us posted. Good to talk to you guys. You yeah, know, you guys do such a great job with oh, all thanks. your interviews, and 
I think anybody that has interest in uh, exactly what you're talking about, kind of behind the scenes of the music business and what what goes on in the studios and with uh, with session musicians and all, all the talented people that they're involved in making these records, you, you guys really create um, some insight into into what goes on there, which is really fun. It's fun for to listen to your shows too. Well, it's good. It's it's good to hear that. We really appreciate it. Thanks and a lot. Uh, Jeff, it's good talking to you. Thanks for spending a few minutes with us. And I also wanted to uh, thank Max Zape, our correspondent in San Diego, for hanging out with us today. Thanks, Max. Thanks, Max. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, take care, Jeff. All right. Well, uh, yeah. Good to say hi, and uh, hope everything's going good in Indianapolis, and hope to see you there soon. All okay. Right. Great. Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Special thanks to Jimmy Haslip for joining us today on Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Reif, and Scott Sheriff for their continued support and content development for Inside MusicCast. Inside MusicCast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside MusicCast. Inside MusicCast.